Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello, welcome. Uh, yeah, I'm Finton. I work here at the ODI. Uh, thanks for you know taking your lunch to come in, learn some stuff. And uh, yeah, so today we have uh, Jacob Orvik Stott uh, from the think tank uh, .everyone. And uh, his work is usually on digital rights and the public's relationship with technology. And um, today he'll be talking about uh, yeah, uh, like responsibility and, and digital responsibility and also the dot everyone's idea about how the UK should have a office for responsible technology. Um, if you want to tweet about it, it's uh, use the hashtag ODI Fridays. And um, after, we'll have a bit of time for uh, Q&A as well. Okay? Go ahead. Thanks very much. Um, so, yeah, hello everyone. Um, regulating for responsible technology. Is the UK getting it right? It's um, a very hot topic at the moment. Uh, it's quite a big and complex question, but I'm going to try and attempt to answer it uh, by doing three things. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is give a kind of whistle-stop tour um, of the kind of history of digital regulation uh, in the recent term in the UK. Um, then I'm going to kind of smoothly segue onto some of the proposals that um, other people have had for reforming digital regulation and some of the good ideas they've had. Uh, and then I'm going to move on to uh, our own proposals from Debt Everyone uh, for an Office for Responsible Technology. Um, and I'm going to kind of slowly and deliberately explain why our proposal is the most sensible of them all. So our story uh, begins, or actually before I go into the history, I'm going to tell you a bit about who I am and who Debt Everyone is. Um, so as I was saying uh, a second ago to Finton, uh, we are a smallish think tank. We live just down the road in Somerset House. Um, we do many things, but our overarching purpose is to champion um, responsible technology for a fairer future. Um, and in our eyes, responsible technology kind of considers the unintended consequences of its application. Um, it considers where the kind of value flows to and from the technology. It considers kind of societal context in which it operates um, and it looks to kind of work for society, um, not just with society as well. Um, but our story begins really um, with the history of digital regulation in the UK. Um, and I want to start in kind of a, almost a bygone era. It was a, it was a simpler time uh, for Theresa here. It was a simpler time because all she had to do was just publish a manifesto and try and get it right. Um, and the digital regulation story starts here. Um, for a number of reasons. Um, first and foremost, it meant that the government had to do some things. Um, so part of the manifesto was the digital charter. Uh, the aim of the digital charter was to make uh, the UK the safest place to be online and also the best place to start a digital business. Um, part of that digital charter um, was an explicit commitment for stronger regulation of digital technologies and platforms. Um, they also proposed an industry-wide levy um, to support initiatives to tackle some of the online harms like cyberbullying, hate speech, things like that. Um, there was also some kind of smaller elements to it, like uh, a right to be forgotten that would help the public to um, delete any data held about them when they reached the age of 18 and stuff like that. So it was quite a wide-ranging and, wide and varied uh, manifesto in terms of the digital proposals. Um, as I've already said, it was significant because it meant they had to do something, but it was also significant because of the kind of tone. And I don't think it was an accident that they kind of explicitly call out social media in the manifesto um, and they explicitly call out online harms. And that's kind of been the focus of uh, a lot of the UK government's work going forward. Um, fast forward a year or so, uh, we have the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I'm sure everyone's already heard about that. Um, but to kind of give you a really quick overview of what that was, 
that was kind of Facebook looking the other way, uh, whilst the Cambridge researcher um, Alexander Kogan gave, I think, around 87 million users' data to Cambridge Analytica, who then duly built um, a kind of fairly sophisticated or not sophisticated, depending on your worldview, uh, behavioural model around how people act um, and kind of hawked these behavioural models to lots of different political parties um, with the view of kind of influencing the political landscape. And this was significant, I think, because it was kind of uh, the start of this public tech lash when the public started to realise that maybe tech wasn't neutral, tech was actually something that was kind of inherently political and it was increasingly kind of ingrained in our democratic systems. Um, it also kind of emboldened politicians. From this point onwards, it was almost kind of expected of politicians that they would kind of uh, criticise big tech platforms and social media companies and stuff. It also emboldened regulators. Um, in the UK, the Information Commissioner's Office, um, off the back of this, and also the GDPR, which I'll talk about in a second, got lots of new powers, um, more resources and things like that. Um, and it kind of, as I've already alluded to, opened up a tin of geopolitical worms as well. Um, it played into the whole kind of Russia-US debate that's still ongoing at the moment. Uh, the Brexit campaign was also implicated. Um, and again, as I've said, it kind of made the digital political. And it brought it into that arena. Next up, a few months later, uh, we have the GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, with this regulation, which was devised by the EU, but actually filtered through to a lot of other countries, particularly in Africa, um, came a host of new rights. So it was easier... Uh, for the public to access the companies that uh, the data that companies hold about them, um, it gave uh, data protection regulators again stronger powers to fine people up to four percent of global turnover. Um, again, it meant that companies had to get more proactive consent from people to use their data. So it was a big power shift between companies and individuals in terms of how they use data. Um, and as I've said. Uh, or as I've alluded to, um, it was significant not just because it shifted this balance, but also because it kind of started a global conversation. Even in the US now, they're talking uh, mostly in sort of democratic circles um, about whether they should have a sort of similar regulation. Um, and they're thinking about different things. And it kind of showed the EU and member states within the EU that if they were to act, uh, then actually other governments around the world might follow. Next up. Uh, we fast forward to this year, um, so a couple of months ago, this was a quote from Ian Russell. Um, Ian Russell is the father of Molly Russell, um, who unfortunately committed suicide um, in part because of her experiences on Instagram and social media. Um, this uh, provoked quite a strong wave of emotion within the media and within politicians and within the public. Um, following her death, um, Instagram promised to tackle self-harm content on their sites. Um, a host of politicians came out and said that um, social media should be banned if they don't tackle harmful content. Um, lots of different ministers, I think Margot James, who's the Minister for Digital, um, the Suicide Prevention Minister, and Jeremy Wright, who's the Minister for the Digital Culture, Media and Sport um, Department, all came out and said that this isn't acceptable and social media companies will probably be subject to stronger regulation in the near future. Um, and again, it was that kind of mainstreaming um, of the debate uh, in the public eye and it became the norm to say that social media companies in particular will be subject to stronger regulation. And then just this week, just to give you a flavour of how quickly things move and how diverse the issues are, um, the European Union approved the copyright directive a couple of days ago. 
This was quite controversial, um, mainly because one of the laws within it would require um, platforms to automatically filter all content that users upload to look for copyrighted materials. And there's a big uproar about this because people were worried that that would threaten users of speech. Platforms would over-moderate just so they weren't burnt by this copyrighted material. Um, and that conversation is still kind of rumbling on. Um, a few days before that, the EU also fined Google 1.5 billion euros um, for violations of competition law in the ad market. Basically, they got caught um, making the people that were signing up to their AdSense business sign exclusivity agreements that made them promise that they wouldn't put their ads anywhere else, which isn't very friendly competitive behaviour. Um, elsewhere, back in the UK, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation have published their strategy. So this centre is intended to kind of reform and make the UK's regulatory system more forward-looking, um, doing lots of horizon scanning, looking for the risks associated with digital technologies, um, and some of the opportunities as well, and alerting regulators and the government to them. Um, and lastly, uh, there's some question marks there because I've had quite a stressful week not knowing whether or not the Internet Safety Strategy white paper was going to be published. Uh, they've been threatening to publish this white paper for a couple of months now. Um, but luckily, as far as I'm aware, they haven't published it in the past sort of 20 minutes. Um, and so I haven't had to totally restructure my slides, which is good. Um, but I'll allude to, well, I'll talk about uh, some of the things that are probably going to be in the white paper in a second. Um, and that's just like a really small, probably inadequate sample of some of the stuff that's been going on. I haven't spoken about um, digital taxes. I've only really touched upon misinformation and fake news, automation, age verification of porn websites, you know, extremism, terrorist content. There's a whole host of other things that are being spoken about in quite a lot of depth at the moment. Um, and it's really complex, it's really fast-moving, uh, and it's quite a crowded space at the moment. Um, and just so I don't seem like I'm grumpy and I'm a doomsayer, there's lots of kind of positive stuff happening as well. Um, there's a lot of work going on around opening up the public's data um, for public good, and obviously the Open Data Institute are doing a lot on this with their work on data trusts. Uh, there's also kind of a host of government initiatives to try and use technology to tackle some of the big societal challenges like climate change and repurpose technology for more sort of social good. Um, so it's not all doom and gloom, but the thing I'm trying to get at here is it's really crowded, it's really fast-moving, it's really complex. Um, and so in such a crowded space, it's probably not a surprise that there's a lot of proposals flying out at the moment as well. Um, one of the things that's been talked about the most at the moment is a duty of care for platforms. And this, I believe, is going to be part of um, the Internet Safety Strategy white paper, um, and basically what this law does is it tries to address the current state of play where big platforms and big search engines aren't liable for any of the content that users post on their platforms. Um, people are saying that's not fair. You know, these uh, services have uh, algorithms and product architecture and they make choices about the content people see. They make choices about the experience that people have on them and so they should have some responsibility. And a duty of care is going to aim to give them some liability for this harmful content that happens on their services by saying that they need to be responsible for the overall safety level of, the, of their platforms and services in the same way that a pub is responsible overall for the safety of their customers or an employee is responsible overall, uh, sorry, an employer is responsible overall for the safety of their employees. Um, another very different proposal that's come out recently is around a digital markets unit. Um, this was proposed by uh, Jason Furman, who was a former economist in the Obama administration. And the government had asked him, along with some other uh, academics and specialists in this area, to explore how to update competition law for the digital age. Because um, in, in, 
era where kind of data fuels a lot of the economy, lots of services are free to use at the point of services, the old way of looking at competition, which was primarily seen in what prices consumers were charged for products, isn't really fit for purpose. And so this firm and review proposed a digital markets unit. Um, it would do a couple of things. It would enforce a code of conduct to promote competition between what they call strategically important platforms that have a particularly big role in the economy and in society. Um, and it would also have powers to make companies share data amongst themselves so they couldn't hoard data, um, get more insights from it and improve their products without other people also being able to do that. So again, quite different to duty of care, but happening at the same time. Lastly, lots of separate people have been calling for an internet regulator. Um, they actually want them to do quite different things. So the NSPCC has recently called for an internet regulator to ensure children are safe online. Um, the Digital Culture and Media and Sport Committee has called for one to enforce an ethical code of practice for social media platforms and big search engines as well. Um, also, the Cairn Cross Committee has called for an independent regulator um, that would oversee the kind of relationships between news publishers and the platforms and make sure both of those parties get a kind of fair deal. So there's loads happening in this space. Which brings me on to our own proposals. Um, and the reason I finished um, on the internet regulator, point, internet regulator point was because when we started our Regulating for Responsible Technology program at .everyone, we initially set off with a view to find out what an independent internet regulator might look like and what it might do. Um, and the reason we set out to do that was because we did an earlier piece of work which surveyed the public's attitudes and understanding, to, understanding of digital technologies. And one of the main things that they called for was greater accountability from tech companies. And they were supportive of an independent internet regulator. So we went away, we spoke to lots of people, we did some of our own thinking, and we were trying to imagine what this independent internet regulator might look like. But in the course of doing that, we uncovered some more sort of deep-rooted systemic challenges that a single internet regulator couldn't really tackle. And so I'm going to talk to you about these challenges first, and then I'm going to explain to you why we think an Office for Responsible Technology would be a solution to those challenges. So the first thing we found was that regulators need better digital capabilities. This quote here is from um, our friend Christopher Wiley from earlier, who was the whistleblower in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, and he says, amongst other things, that the fact is they've had to ask me a lot of questions that a database engineer would not ask. Um, and the people he's talking about here is the Information Commissioner's Office, which is the UK's data regulator. So out of everyone in the land, you would hope that they are the people that do know the questions to ask of a database engineer. And in fairness to the commission, Information Commissioner's Office, a lot has changed since then. They've been given new powers. Um, they've been given a lot more resources. So he probably wouldn't say this about them now. But this is indicative overall of the challenges facing the regulatory system. Um, it's hard to pay for the top talent. They can't really offer private sector wages. It's also kind of hard to compete with the allure of the private sector. Um, one of the sort of funniest comments that I had during the interviews for uh, this work was from a regulator who sort of dryly observed that he hadn't seen any pool tables or ping pong tables or bean bags in the office of a regulator. So it's kind of a hard sell, really, to get the uh, sort of hottest young minds and the best graduates through the door at a regulator as well. Um, but it's not just a case of expertise and talent. It's also a case of remits. Um, so if you take the Electoral Commission as, as an example, since 2013, they've been begging for new powers to kind of scrutinise um, the uh, funding of online political campaigning in the same way that they do for offline but they still haven't been given those powers. So even when they do have the talent, if they don't have the underpinning legislation, if they don't have the remit and powers, 
to deliver on that, to use that talent, uh, they're still stuck and they, they're not that able to regulate digital technologies. The second broader challenge that we uncovered was around the public. Um, and here we found that society needs agency. Um, this graph uh, comes from that survey that I mentioned um, of the many things we asked them. One of the things we asked them about was terms and conditions on the internet. Um, and actually for me, the interesting thing here isn't so much the 58% that don't read terms and conditions. I think Anyone that's actually ever looked at terms and conditions will, will empathise with that. They're, they're slightly ridiculous, in my opinion. Um, the interesting thing here is actually the 47% of people that feel like they have no choice but to say yes to terms and conditions on the internet, and also the 43% of people that say that there's no point reading terms and conditions because tech companies will do what they want anyway, which if you boil it down to what they're accusing these tech companies of, is, is a, they're essentially accusing them of just lying and doing what they want anyway, which is a pretty big accusation. And so this, to me, speaks to a wider kind of trend where the public feel disempowered, they feel disengaged, they almost feel quite cynical, and they, can't, they, they feel like even if they were to engage, there wouldn't be much of a point there. And so across the regulatory system, we think that we need to kind of re, re-energise the public and give them more power as well. The final thing uh, that we uncovered was that everybody needs evidence. Um, there are several reasons why it's quite hard to get evidence around kind of online harms and some of the opportunities that arise from digital technologies. First and foremost, just the, the pace of change in tech is quite at odds with kind of the timeline that you usually need to develop a rigorous and kind of longitudinal evidence base. Secondly, um, getting access to the data that you need to get the evidence can be quite difficult particularly if it's you know, from a large, private, multinational company that maybe doesn't want to engage with your government. Um, I'm sure we can all think of some examples of that uh, from recent memory. Um, and lastly, it's kind of quite hard to look under the bonnet of digital technologies. Even if a company lets you do that, you might be faced with kind of thousands of algorithms all chatting to each other and understanding what's going on and if there's any intent from the people that have made the algorithms is fiendishly difficult. So there are good reasons why we lack evidence. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that this lack of evidence plays into the kind of wider media and public and political debate as well. And so what we've got here is a headline um, from The Guardian fairly recently. Screen time, not intrinsically bad for children, says doctors. And we can contrast that with another headline here. Uh, They don't exactly sit on the fence. A smartphone to a child is like a gram of cocaine. So if you're a member of the public or even a politician looking for some coherent evidence base and coherent advice, it's a pretty challenging landscape to be in. And so an internet regulator doesn't really address that fact either. And so based on these kind of broader systemic challenges, we went away and we thought about what would be the best way to tackle them. And we came up with the Office for Responsible Technology. And the office would do three broad things. So the first thing it would do is to empower regulators It would do this in a number of ways. Um, It would scrutinise the remits and powers that regulators have, making sure they're kind of up to date, um, making sure there's parity between offline regulation and online regulation, um, and it would recommend these changes to government and help drive them through. Secondly, it would build up the digital capabilities of regulators. We see it as being almost like a, a tech hub where they would be able to pay for the tech talent because it would be a cost that's almost like an overhead spread across the whole regulatory system, um, and it would work with regulators to help them understand the challenges associated with digital technologies facing them in their sectors, be it um, blockchain or algorithms, data, AI, you name it, any of the sort of broad technological trends that cut across all different sectors and all different regulators, it would be able to help them with. 
Um, and the last thing within this empowering regulators function that it would do um, is it would help shift regulators away from being kind of reactive and slow moving towards being more proactive and fast moving. So it would do this by encouraging regulators to adopt horizon scanning. Um, it would do this by um, fostering kind of communities of practice around some of the regulatory tools that some regulators are using at the moment to deal with fast moving technologies. Um, so an example of this is the Sandbox, which the Financial Conduct Authority has been doing for some time. Um, and Sandbox's work by basically saying to potential innovators, OK, we're going to let you innovate and we're going to let you test out your product, but in exchange you need to let us watch you do that. And then they make legislation and they make regulation based on those learnings. And it's a bit more collaborative, it's a bit more forward-looking. The second overarching function that we believe the office is needed for is to inform the policymakers and public as I've mentioned, and there's kind of an analogy here potentially with Public Health England and what they do in the health space. Um, so it would conduct in-depth research, um, it would communicate these to the public, to policymakers, um, to the tech industry themselves, um, and it would offer guidance. So it might do sort of short-term communications. Let's say there was a ransomware outbreak that people needed to know about. It would work with other bodies to kind of communicate that to the public, help them protect themselves. But it would also do kind of longer-term engagement to promote positive long-term change in the public's relationship with digital technologies. So it might, for example, run a long-term campaign around media literacy to tackle misinformation, or it might do a long-term campaign around helping people to understand their data rights and how their data gets used online. And the last thing um, that we hope the office would do would be to support people to seek redress. Um, this function is kind of aimed at addressing this power imbalance between the public and tech companies. Um, so as a first step, uh, what the office would do is it would audit the processes and procedures and technologies that tech companies have in place to protect the public from harms. So it might, for example, do spot check on um, algorithms or artificial intelligence used to spot harmful content. Um, it might do spot checking on just complaints handling processes and moderation processes to check if they're fair, to check if they're working as well. When these practices for protecting the public don't work, what it would do is enable redress and it would mediate between two parties. So, for example, um, let's say uh, you're a member of the public and you feel like a bank has unfairly discriminated against you in a mortgage application based on their algorithms. They might have a biased algorithm. You might refer that to the office. It would step in, try and audit the algorithm, try and understand if, if you have been discriminated against based on, say, your location or your age or your uh, ethnicity and so on and so on. And if you have been, it would help you to seek redress for that. Um, and the last thing it would do within this redress function is kind of feed all, their feed all these learnings back into the system. So with normal ombudsmen uh, that do this sort of mediation function, one of the key things that they can do is spot harms at an early stage because they're kind of the front door often for the public who are experiencing issues often in the consumer space. And so what the office would do is flag these spikes in emerging harms back into regulators, again, to make the regulatory system stronger. So those are the three things we want the Office for Responsible Technology to do. We want them to empower regulators. We want them to inform policymakers and the public. And we want them to help people to seek redress. So that's the Office. That's my kind of whistle-stop tour of the history. Um, I thought I'd just make some wild speculations about where the digital regulation debate might be going next. Um, I'm reluctant to call them anything more than a speculation or a trend because the, the world is crazy at the moment and it moves so fast anyway but that being said I think there's some broad things on the horizon that may well happen 
Um, tech taxes is, is a big topic of conversation at the moment. The EU have been trying to push through a law that would uh, bring about a unified tax for digital services across all of the member states. Um, it got voted down by a few countries, and that's unlikely to move. But a few countries, including the UK and France, I think as well, are kind of pushing forward on their own to develop their own taxes. Um, the OECD is also looking at its own unified framework, which if that comes through will be a very kind of powerful lever for change as they have over sort of I think like 40 or something countries that fall under that, that group. Um, so that could be a big lever there. The second big trend is around digital liability. I've already spoken a bit about the duty of care, about the copyright directive and how that's putting more responsibility and more liability on digital services and platforms for um, their impacts. Um, but there's other aspects of liability coming over the hill, I think, as well. Um, on an EU level, there's legislation expected around terrorist content, making platforms liable for that and making them take any terrorist content down within one hour of it being flagged to them. Um, there's also a broader conversation about algorithmic liability um, and people are wondering if and how an algorithm can be liable and should the people that own those algorithms be liable as well. Um, the third trend I think might happen in the next year or so is around a bill of digital rights. Um, people are starting to think that lumping the onus on the public to protect themselves isn't necessarily the best option and actually what we need to do is give them a set of rights where uh, we will know if they've been breached and other people can speak for them even if they don't know their own rights have been breached. And Labour are thinking about sort of a general bill of digital rights but other people are thinking specifically about a bill of data rights, uh, thinking about stuff around data security, data privacy, um, discrimination and stuff like that. So that's another interesting area. Um, the last point, is around the breakup of big tech. I think that sounds pretty hard to me, but a lot of people are talking about it. Um, we've got the Lib Dems and Labour have kind of said off the cuff that they might break up big tech in the US. The Democrats are quite hot on this at the moment. Um, Elizabeth Warren has recently published a kind of multi-point plan for how she would break up big tech. Um, and a few other people are jumping on that bandwagon as well. So quite difficult, but expect at least that conversation to continue to rumble on. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about in terms of a prediction is public sector tech. Um, I've sort of, I deliberately have gone off piste with my formatting here because I think this photo is amazing. It's kind of like a Renaissance painting. But what it shows uh, is the police at the Notting Hill Carnival in London. And the reason I want to talk about the police in Notting Hill Carnival in London is because a couple of years ago they got in some hot water for using facial recognition technology. Um, they were using it to profile people that they thought had been committing criminal acts and then hauling them off the streets mid-carnival, taking them into custody. People weren't very pleased with that, and it turns out for good reason. Uh, a piece of work by Big Brother Watch, which is a, a civil society organisation in the UK, uh, found last year that the success rate for the Metropolitan Police's facial recognition technology was 2%, which is crazy. And in other jurisdictions, that success rate went up to 5%. Not that much of an improvement. And so I think people are beginning to be aware that you know, the public sector and the government isn't faultless in this space either. And I think we'll have a lot more scrutiny of how the public sector uses technology in the year ahead as well. So those are my sort of slightly arbitrary predictions. Uh, and I hope uh, to discuss them with you now. So thanks very much. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, that's really good. Um, just uh, if anyone has any questions now they'd like to ask Jacob on anything about that. Uh, yeah, and oh, actually, I don't need the mic. But uh, when talking into the mic, just hold, just make sure to hold it off. Okay. Um, Tim McGar from BSI. Slightly leading question, but <laughs> given 
the trend that's going on, do you think there's any chance that big tech will sort their own house out? Um, I think there's already a trend to, towards big tech trying to sort their own house out. If you look at their kind of appearances um, in front of various parliamentary committees, they're already saying, we accept there will be regulation, we just want the right regulation. And a few of them are already taking steps to kind of preempt regulation. And I'm thinking about um, Facebook setting up their own independent content council and stuff like that to police their moderation decisions and things like that. Um, I don't know if it'll be enough to ward off regulation. I'm pretty sure it won't be um, because I think politicians have run out of patience with that kind of don't worry, we'll sort it rhetoric. Um, but yeah, it remains to be seen just how, how far they'll go, I think, in terms of what the government does. got a question um hopefully we'll get some from twitter through as well cool. um so you mentioned the um uh, current regulators and the fact that they're uh, not as effective as they could be is that down to um uh is it skills is it culture is it access to technology what do you think the main reasons are um so i think the first thing to say on this is that it's not the fact that all regulators aren't equipped. Um, there are several regulators, particularly the big regulators, that are doing quite good stuff in this area and are quite big um, and have enough money potentially to get tech talent through the door. Um, people like Ofcom, um, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority in particular, and then some others like the Competition and Markets Authority are starting to think about how to shift to being towards more, pro more proactive. Um, and they've also just recently set up a data unit and stuff like that, which again will be a tech hub within the CMA. So it's not all of them, but there is a big challenge across the sort of 90 or so regulators, particularly the smaller ones um, who are facing problems to do with digital tech. Um, and I think uh, to answer your, to come back to your original question, it's kind of a, a combination of all three of those things. It is skills, it is culture. Um, in terms of the legacy of regulation, um, the ethos of, of regulation initially, particularly in coming out of Chicago in the 70s, was very much do not mess with the market unless something has definitely, definitely happened. The worst thing you could do is to be seen to be interfering where it wasn't necessary and wasn't needed. And so that has kind of led to a culture of caution there. But I think regulators are definitely waking up to the fact that, that that's just not suitable anymore. Um, and they're slowly becoming more comfortable with being a bit more proactive. So um, I was wondering for your proposal for um, the Office of Responsible Tech, if you've had the opportunity to present it or if you've had any sort of returns about um, even like tech platforms or government, what do they think of this proposal? And I don't know. what's Everyone loves it. <laughs> um, yeah, we've had some quite good feedback. Um, when we published it, uh, the Ombudsman Services supported it. Um, a few lords from the Communications Committee supported it. People like Impress and Independent Press Regulator are all quite keen on it. Um, I think everybody particularly agrees with the evidence-based part. Um, I think a lot of people agree with the empowering regulators part. There's a question mark over whether we need a new office or whether the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation will be able to do that kind of empowering regulators bit. That kind of remains to be seen, given they're only kind of getting off the ground. Um, and then uh, just a few weeks ago now, the Lords Communication Committee published... Um, their final report on their internet to regulate or not to regulate inquiry. Um, and they called for a similar sort of thing. I think they called it a digital authority, um, but it essentially does what, what we're saying the Office for Responsible Technology does. So I think there's appetite for it. 
I have a slightly historic question, which is um, if you think about, um, say, Facebook and the algorithms that they produce and then how they were used in the American elections, mm -hmm. um, at what point do you think the regulator would, could, should have stepped in and what powers, you know, what powers would they have had to, to change at which point? Because I think there's a point where people are making the tech Mm -hmm. And maybe they understand some of the things that it's going to do, but they don't understand all of the effects. Yeah. And then there's a later point when the public begin to understand the effects. So at what point would a regulator helpfully sure. step so, in? So there's a few uh, activities happening at the moment that maybe hint at an answer to that. Um, one of the things is um, the Information Commissioner's Office and the fact that they've recently appointed a fellow to develop uh, what's called an algorithm auditing framework. And they're at an early stage of that. But the rationale behind this framework would be precisely for uh, the ICO and other regulators, hopefully, to be able to use it to go in, expect the algorithms, uh, inspect the algorithms, sorry, um, to check if it was, has been discriminating, to understand the impact of it on the product architecture. Um, there's a few other sort of more general things that they could have done, um, in particular kind of forcing um, more detailed transparency reporting. Um, so that would be, uh, for example, asking Facebook to report um, the amount of political ads that they've seen, um, the report exactly who's spending what on their platforms. Um, they're also talking about setting up an archive for all political adver advertisements on Facebook so that anyone can go in and look at all of the political ads at any given point. So there's a few sort of different ways to look at it. But I think in general, um, the earlier is obviously always the better, if possible, and that's hopefully where the algorithm auditing comes in. Uh, you mentioned um, earlier about the appetite amongst MPs for kind of more to be done and kind of the idea that self-regulation probably isn't going to be enough because there's a, there's a kind of definite feeling that action must be taken. Um, I wonder, um, with the internet safety white paper coming out, whether or not you think uh, MPs will think the government has gone far enough or whether, you know, regardless of what's in it, they will still call for um, kind of greater, greater regulation. Yeah, it's a good question. Um obviously depends slightly what's in it, but as far as I'm aware, the duty of care will be in it. Um, and judging by the statements coming out across all the political parties, um, I think they've all explicitly at one point or another said, we back a duty of care. Um, that should satisfy them all somewhat. Um, I think the white paper, although it's being called a white paper, will come with a consultation attached to it, which isn't normal for... for a white paper normally is kind of the final position... Uh, paper from government and there's not usually much that's negotiable within it but I think despite calling it that it's going to be a lot more kind of um, it's not the final solution basically that was going to be published in the white paper um, I think that um, some might still be pushing the kind of tax element a bit more um, again we're at the early stages of developing that tax and there was a consultation that shut I think last month to explore what this digital tax might look like so depending on how soft or hard that tax ends up being you still might get a lot of MPs saying you know, that's not generating any money or that's not very, very much. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. I've got a question straight from Twitter. It's from Tom Forth from IDR Leeds. He gave last week's talk. Um, he asks, um, what should a regulator for responsible technology do if a company outside of the UK refuses to engage with it? should they be blocked from operating in the UK? 
Hmm. Should they be blocked? I think that maybe is quite a dramatic, dramatic response. Um, it's also not that helpful, particularly if they're an integral part of the economy. So I'm thinking about um, big platforms that are kind of strategically important and have a kind of whole infrastructure of other apps and services that kind of rely on them to function. Um, I think in terms of the question around how to regulate a company that doesn't have a physical presence in the UK and is kind of almost borderless, that's a major challenge at the moment. And I think that's where the initiatives um, around the kind of OECD tax framework um, and kind of EU level regulations will really come in handy because I think there's only a certain... On a state level, you're unlikely to be able to have an impact on these multinational companies. So it's all about collaboration. I think the EU level is the smallest kind of unit that will have any impact potentially. Um, and you've also got kind of US action and Chinese action and stuff like that that would also have, a, have an impact, but that's probably less forthcoming. So I expect a lot of the, the action against sort of large multinational companies to come from the EU going forward, I think. Yeah, I'm just wondering, so there's that phrase of uh, technology is everything that's been invented after you were born. Like, <laughs> so for, if there's an office for responsible tech, what, like technology is everywhere, obviously, what doesn't do, are you specifically talking about online software platforms? That's, that's particularly it? Is that just the remit or to go beyond that? Um, we kind of dodged that question in, a, in our paper because <laughs> we didn't want to go down a wormhole. Um, so my answer is not going to be very helpful. But the remit is digital technologies. But we're very keen to emphasise that that's not just um, websites and online services because I think a lot of the um, oxygen in the debate at the moment in the UK is taken up by big tech, social media. When we talk about regulation, often that's what we really mean. Um, but obviously there's a whole other ecosystem of things out there that are going to have a really massive impact um, in the report, we talk about things like quantum computing, which might like totally undermine lots of the kind of security encryption of loads of different services and stuff like that that are coming over the horizon, and people aren't really talking about that much in regulatory terms at the moment. Um, obviously, AI and, and data are massive issues as well. So, yeah, we're very keen for it not just to be seen through the lens of websites and, and, and big tech platforms, basically. Oh, back again. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Um, I was just going to ask if there was any uh, precedent either in Europe or internationally for the kind of thing that you're proposing in Office for Responsible Tech, if it's something that's being looked at elsewhere. Um, in, far, in terms of precedents, at the moment, not really. Um, in the US, a while ago, there was something called the Office for Science and Technology Assessment, which did similar-ish sort of things in terms of um, doing the horizon scanning for risks and opportunities, training... Um, MPs and policymakers around digital issues and stuff like that. Um, but that no longer exists, unfortunately, um, for reasons that I'm not sure why. Probably some ideological thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's a fairly unique proposal. I think, as I've already mentioned, um, the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation might also lead to other countries to kind of adopt similar centres and similar offices, um, which might be interesting, interesting to look at as well. I was just wondering if you um, had any thoughts or actually are doing any research into um, what a similar government body would look like on the local level, so be it uh, combined authorities or, or local authorities. Yeah, as, as in scrutinising the public sector tech, what would the equivalent body be? Or uh, 
well, a lot of the a lot of the things that that you actually put up as a, what would be the remit of such a uh, uh, such a body are not necessarily about regulation. It's, they are also about capacity building within mm. the within the public sector. Yeah. And um, clearly, when when there's all this talk about smart cities and what that might come yeah. with, then I would assume you would need something similar on the local level as well, yeah. taking up some of these responsibilities locally. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea, and I think. Um, the government digital service aims to be that kind of hub of expertise for, for centralised government. Um, I, it's not really my ex area of expertise, so I might just slightly do dodge that question. Um, but I think that the, the logic of empowering regulators could easily, easily be translated to empowering local authorities. Um, I, maybe, obviously, without the kind of remit scrutinising function, but I think that would translate. But yeah, it's not something we've thought about in depth at this moment in time. Um, yeah, if that's it, then uh, maybe just another round of applause for Jacob. That's okay. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for coming. And, uh... You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.